Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman of the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst who discusses what we know about Russia's objectives in its invasion of Ukraine and options available to prevent a wider, more dangerous war. Journalist, author, and longtime anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman, who warns that damage to any of Ukraine's 15 nuclear reactors in the war with Russia could result in catastrophic health and ecological impacts. And Connecticut State Senator Marilyn Moore, who talks about how the recent deaths of two black women in Bridgeport, Connecticut, represents a wider systemic devaluation and disregard for the lives of women of color across the U.S., But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. France is pulling its forces out of the West African nation of Mali nine years after sending troops there to fight the Islamist insurgency. The announcement followed a rapid breakdown in relations between France and Mali's military rulers, and it threw into uncertainty regional anti-terrorism operations spearheaded by France and backed by Western allies. France initially had sent troops into Mali in 2013 to fight armed Islamist insurgents who had taken over its northern cities. Relations between France and Mali have plunged to new lows after the military government refused to implement a return to civilian rule. The West also accuses Mali of using the services of a Russian mercenary group, a move that gives Moscow a new foothold in the region. Some 4,000 French soldiers will be withdrawn mostly from Mali, where there is also a 15,000-strong United Nations peacekeeping force. A military specialist in the Sahel region told Al Jazeera that the withdrawal would leave a security vacuum, creating a problem for both Mali and Niger. During the congressional debate over the proposed $300 a month child tax credit, many high-ranking Republicans complained there was already enough cash assistance available in the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families Program, or TANF. The child tax credit effectively reduces poverty, but Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell criticizes the program, saying it derails established rules on mandating recipients' transition from welfare to work. TANF, created 25 years ago under President Clinton, has permitted states to impose strict rules around benefit eligibility and is seen by critics as a cruel failure even as its funding has been effectively frozen. ProPublica reports that many heavy-handed and harsh rules around TANF can be found in western states. In New Mexico, a low-income mother applying for assistance must identify the father of the child and disclose the date she got pregnant. In Arizona, only 6% of families below the poverty line can obtain assistance. In Nevada, the number of children in poverty doubled between 1997 and 2015 because the state didn't index TANF to inflation as the cost of living surged. Nevada also gets the smallest population-adjusted amount of TANF funding in the nation at only $63 a year per child. 
Over 3,000 high school students from across the Twin Cities metro area in Minnesota walked out of class February 8th to march on the governor's mansion and demand justice following the death of Amir Locke. Locke, a 22-year-old black man, was shot and killed February 2nd by a Minneapolis Police Department SWAT officer during a no-knock apartment raid. Locke was neither named in the warrant nor was a resident of the apartment. This is the latest high-profile police killing of black men, including George Floyd, in Metro Minneapolis-St. Paul. According to In These Times magazine, students who organized the walkout through social media are demanding the demilitarization of the Minneapolis Police Department, the resignation of those culpable in the killing of Amir Locke, and a ban on no-knock warrants. The students are also calling for a full review of police department and SWAT practices. The resignations of Interim Police Chief Amelia Huffman and Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey and accountability for Judge Peter Cahill, who approved the no-knock warrant that led to Locke's death. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. When Russian President Vladimir Putin announced Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he stated his goal was the demilitarization and denazification of the government in Kiev, a justification for his unprovoked war of aggression that most of the world has rejected. In response, the U.S. and its European allies have invoked harsh economic sanctions on Russia, including blocking the nation's major financial institutions and cutting them off from the international SWIFT banking system. During his State of the Union address, President Biden announced that the U.S. will ban Russian aircraft from its airspace. Several days into the war, with Russian troops meeting stiff resistance and unable to capture any of Ukraine's major cities, Putin declared on February 27th that he was placing his nuclear forces into special combat readiness status, sending a chill through the world. Many leaders across the globe and commentators now openly question if Mr. Putin is a rational actor. Thousands of opponents of the war have organized protests in Russia's major cities with reports that police have arrested more than 5,000 anti-war activists. At the same time, representatives of the Ukraine and Russian governments met for talks on the border of Belarus to discuss Ukraine's demand for an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of Russian forces. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Here he discusses his views on Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, the Kremlin's objectives, and options available to prevent a wider, more dangerous war. What I really worry about is that the war is going so badly for Putin. There have been so many errors of of judgment, of tactics, of logistical planning, of uh, assumptions about NATO, assumptions about the West, assumptions about President Biden that have been wrong, assumptions about the Ukrainian people. What will he do to compensate for his, his own stubborn policies that have brought the world to a, a real catastrophe? And I think it's going to get very ugly. 
the, the more strain he encounters, the more likely he is to, to hit very hard, including civilian tactics, which he really hasn't done. There have been some uh, sporadic attacks, but nothing planned. Uh, we haven't seen the, the A-game in terms of cyber war, which I expected to see as an introduction to the use of military force. We really haven't seen that. So the next few days, uh, I think, could lead to another one of these inflection points. Ironically, I think once the Russians do occupy the country, and I think that is their goal at this point, then I think the uh, advantage moves to the Ukrainians, who will fight a guerrilla battle and insurgency against the invader. And I don't think the Russians are prepared for that. And there are already reports that a lot of Russian soldiers had no idea what they were being called up for or what they were being assigned to do. Some thought they were just going on, out onto a military exercise, then found themselves in Ukraine. And then over the weekend, with the news that he has declared a higher alert uh, for his nuclear forces, that creates new concerns. Uh, not that we haven't seen nuclear alerts uh, used for political reasons before. Uh, Henry Kissinger did it in the October War when he went to DEFCON 3 for no reason whatsoever, but he was worried about the domestic standing of the United States because Richard Nixon was in the worst days of Watergate uh, on his way to a resignation. Uh, we saw nuclear alerts in South Asia in 1999, uh, a war between India and Pakistan that could have gotten out of hand. The Soviets had an increased nuclear alert in 1969 when they were fighting a war with China on that long 4,000-mile border. But what's so concerning about this is there are, there's a lot of conjecture, and I must say I'm, I'm part of it, that uh, Putin has lost control of, of his mental faculties. If you look at the speeches he gave last week, the one on uh, Monday and Thursday, uh, these speeches were pathological. This brandishing of Ukraine as a, a Nazi state, uh, one of the, the ironies in all this situation, and there are so many, is there are only two countries in the world where you can find a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. One, of course, is Israel. Well, the other is Ukraine. All of the charges about Nazism that uh, Putin is making and denying that Ukraine even has authentic statehood, that it's not sovereign, it's not independent, that it's a pseudo-state, this uh, campaign that Putin is on is just is pathological. Mel, from your point of view, what are the dangers of a prolonged insurgency in Ukraine fighting Russian troops in Eastern Europe? What are the possible consequences for world peace here if we have a prolonged guerrilla war attacking Russian troops in Ukraine? Well, we're going to see a prolonged war in Ukraine, uh, which is bad enough. But we're going to see a revival of the Cold War that's going to be worse than, I think, what we lived through in the 60s and 70s. I think in 1962, uh, with John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, there was the realization that we came a lot closer to war than we were led to understand at the time, including the possible use of nuclear weapons. I can't imagine that this crisis will end in a way that Biden and Putin would be able to sit down uh, and really get back into the kinds of substantive uh, discussions that we need, for which there's probably a lot of agreement. There's a lot of agreement on disarmament, on reducing strategic weapons. There's agreement on nonproliferation. Uh, the Russians have been very supportive of the Iran nuclear accord, which may be uh, reinstated 
uh, in the next week or two. They've been supportive of putting pressure on the North Koreans to limit their nuclear uh, program. Uh, su- support on exchanging intelligence on Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, all that is going to be very difficult. But then the political environment in this country will move so far to the right that Biden's hands will be tied. And because he has uh, the image now, as you watch his uh, popularity plummet, of being weak and ineffectual, I, I think he will not be inclined to make any conciliatory steps, even uh, if this uh, crisis could be resolved somehow, if, if it could be mollified in, in some way. So I'm very pessimistic about where we're headed, and that's even before you get into what does this uh, higher alert status for nuclear weapons really mean. To quote Garrison Keillor, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, things are going to get worse before they get worse. That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Find more analysis and commentary on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the danger of an escalating Cold War by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. When Vladimir Putin launched his unprovoked attack on Ukraine, one of the first regions Russian troops captured was the partially destroyed Chernobyl nuclear power plant, 55 miles north of the capital of Kiev. A nuclear reactor at the Chernobyl plant, then part of the Soviet Union, exploded in 1986, spewing massive amounts of extremely dangerous radiation into the air and soil, which was later detected around the world. The nearby town of Pripyat was abandoned, and a 1,000-square-mile exclusion zone around the plant was created, to prevent people from being exposed to lethal doses of radiation. Now, as one of the largest wars erupts in Europe since World War II, journalist, author, and anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman reminds us that Ukraine is home to 15 nuclear reactors that the nation depends on for more than half its electricity. All but two were built by the Soviet Union that now mostly rely on Russia for critical maintenance and nuclear fuel. Early on in this conflict, international monitors reported that Russian missiles struck Ukrainian facilities containing nuclear waste. Your reporter spoke with Harvey Wasserman, who warns that damage to any of Ukraine's nuclear facilities, either by targeted or accidental military action, could result in catastrophe, with unspeakable health, ecological, and financial impacts. Because of these 15 reactors, This is the most dangerous moment in human history since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I do not exaggerate. These these 15 reactors are scattered in four different spots in Ukraine. They are totally vulnerable to any kind of military attack. Uh, Vladimir Putin could wake up in the morning and say he's going to blow up one or more of these uh, reactors and cause a horrifying apocalypse. We saw, of course, in Chernobyl, which is of course, in Ukraine, that the explosion at Unit 4 on April 26, 1986, uh, carpeted the planet, certainly Ukraine and Belarus, with atomic radiation. According to a 2007 study done by three Russian scientists who compiled more than 5,000 studies of the downwind impacts of Chernobyl, that accident killed more than a million people. And uh, the death toll from any attack on any nuclear plant in Ukraine uh, would be apocalyptic. 
there are six reactors. It's the biggest reactor site in Europe, Zaporozhye, uh, which is near Russia, about 100 kilometers from much of the initial war zone. Anything that would happen at that reactor site that could take down the six reactors would be indescribable in its impact on on the human race and would act, could actually put the survival of the entire human race at risk. And we've seen four reactors explode at Fukushima. The amount of cesium that was released at Fukushima was more than 100 times more than the amount of cesium that was released at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we're on that level. Uh, one errant shell uh, that they didn't mean to shoot uh, could could lead to an apocalyptic event. That's how dangerous the situation is. In discussing what the potential danger is here, it's possible that in a war zone where these nuclear power plants are operating, conflicts in those areas could actually result in the nuclear engineers and the people operating the plant uh, forcing them to leave, which means that nobody's watching these plants and there is enormous potential for them to go haywire, a meltdown possibly. It's hard to say what the consequences are in each individual plant with a conflict, an active conflict going on in the neighborhoods surrounding these plants. What can the world do to ensure that these plants remain safe, as, as safe as possible? They're not safe. The prospects for a nuclear catastrophe at this point in time are somewhere between highly likely and virtually certain. And, uh, you know, these reactors have to be shut. That's not enough, by the way. Just shutting them is not enough, but at least it's a start. I mean, you could, you could have a loss of coolant. You, you could have, if the, if the grid, God forbid, goes down and, and they lose backup power, as they did at Fukushima, that could happen. You know, at Fukushima, the plant workers were running out into the parking lot, taking batteries out of their cars to run the control room. And, you know, and this could all happen by accident, which is, you know, the, the likelihood of which is magnified a thousandfold by being in a war zone. And you're right. It, it, you know, we don't we're not guaranteed that the crews are going to stay in these reactors. You know, why would they? Well, <laughs> you know, they they know what's involved. They know what the stakes are. But if the Russian army is mar- marching down the road and these guys know that the army is going to kill them. Are they going to stick around? And if they don't, as you say, what's going to happen to the reactors? It's not pretty. Harvey, uh, is there anything at this point that the international community can do, the United Nations or other entities, other organizations, to safeguard or do what they can to safeguard these power plants so that they're not involved in the conflict and they are not accidentally shelled or otherwise damaged that would release a hellish radiation fallout on Ukraine and the world? I have no easy answer for that. I wish to God I did. I cannot imagine what the international community could do shy of a massive airdrop, uh, you know, of troops to surround and protect these reactors, but it, they can't be protected by mere troops. You know, you can't even protect the waste dump uh, of the Chernobyl that blew up in 1986. Uh, we are totally at the mercy of the gods of war and the goddess of chance. This is a completely unsustainable, unimaginable uh, disaster here. Uh, you know, I, I wake up every morning hoping to God that, the, that I don't have to read about something that happened in these reactors. And the, the media will not cover it. 
You're the only media person on this planet right now that's entertaining a show discussing uh, th- this reality, which is the most serious reality of all. It's, it's more serious in many ways than the nuclear weapons. Somebody's going to have to decide to use those nuclear weapons. These, these power plants are completely at the mercy of chance here, uh, and the chances look worse every day. That was journalist, author, and longtime anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman. Find a link to his recent article titled Chernobyl 2.0, How Russia's Attack on Ukraine Could Release Nuclear Fallout Across the Globe, and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In December 2021, two African-American women died on the same day in Bridgeport, Connecticut's largest city. Both women were later determined to have died of natural causes. However, the families of both women, 23-year-old Lauren Smith-Fields and 53-year-old Brenda Lee Rawls, complained that they weren't notified of their loved ones' deaths in a timely manner and were treated very disrespectfully by the investigating police officers. The two officers involved were placed on paid administrative leave during an investigation of their actions. On February 19th, women and a few men gathered in Bridgeport for a march and rally that called for a national community-based search to replace the acting police chief, implementation of Bridgeport's new mobile crisis intervention team, an investigation of the Bridgeport Police Department by the U.S. Justice Department, and more. What happened to these two women is unfortunately not rare. In fact, approximately 100,000 black women and girls went missing in the U.S. in 2020. But news media coverage is scarce in comparison with other demographic groups. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Connecticut State Senator Marilyn Moore, who represents Bridgeport in the state Senate and was one of the speakers at the rally. Here, Senator Moore talks about why she believes what occurred in Bridgeport is illustrative of a wider national problem concerning the systemic devaluation and disregard for the lives of women of color. These two women and what happened to them and the lack of respect for human life, um, disregard for the family and their feelings, I just felt as that this was an opportunity to bring all Black women together to highlight, you know, what's happening here in Bridgeport. The circumstances of how they died is one thing. The fact that nobody went to the families to let them know. I mean, one lady lived on the same street, right? Deborah, she went down the street to see a gentleman, died there. It wasn't until a couple of days later that the sister went to look for her sister and found out she had died. Now, same street. I mean, not only the police, but the gentleman who said your sister died or the landlord. I mean, what would it take to have walk down the street and say, did you know, right? And what would it take for the police once they found the body to say, where does she live? She lives down the street to let them know they've taken her. I mean, it's just shoddy police work. And it's just disregard for black women and their lives. Like we don't carry value, right? And for people to assume, you know, all the negative things about those two black women, 
is also a slap in the face, right? You don't know the circumstances. And right away, I, I feel personally that they saw two black women and didn't see the value of them and just moved on. I mean, how could you have two incidents like that and say there's not a problem with the system? One of the demands from the rally was that the state legislature form an advisory task force to look into murdered and missing black women and girls in Connecticut, even though apparently these two women were not murder victims and they died of natural causes. Do you think that's a problem in the state? We don't know if it's a problem because we don't update our data on the state website, right? So I've done some investigation pre of the demand and found that each town, each municipality, it works differently. There's, we don't see the data on the state website that says that all the municipalities are sending their data to one place that we could look at it at a statewide level. Senator Marilyn Moore, when a young white woman goes missing, the whole world learns about it from the wall-to-wall 24-7 media coverage. The most recent one was Gabby Petito, a young white social influencer who tragically was killed. And it's not that we don't care about missing white women, but one of these women who died in Bridgeport, Lauren Smith-Fields, was also a social influencer. Do you think this lack of attention to black, indigenous, and women of color is a national problem? I do think it's a national problem because if you look at where we did get coverage, it was on the black news stations, social media coverage for this, the two in Bridgeport. Uh, got national attention, but it wasn't on CNN until other stations had picked it up and they contacted Roland Martin, I believe, to talk about this, the attorney did in the NAACP. But prior to that, I just don't think people value people of color uh, and their lives and their contributions. I feel this attitude also about our, our kids getting shot, one less Black person they have to deal with. And and they I think they rush to an attitude of they deserved it. It's almost like being a victim of rape, right? Well, what did they do to deserve it, right? Not seeing the innocence or the human being behind this situation, but rushing to these conclusions. At the rally, you called for action beyond just that one day. What do you want to see? While I'm pleased at the number of people who attended, I then watched to see how many people reach back and say, well, what can I do, right? Don't go home and just you know, well, I was at, I participated in the rally, uh, but what is your action plan? What do you plan on doing? How are you going to reuse your voice over and over again? We are going to do a follow-up of this and bring people back together and have a larger conversation of, about what happened. We don't want to ease up. This is just a moment, right? But there has to be a path that we're going to continue doing this. Everybody has to take responsibility for what happens in their community. That was Connecticut State Senator Marilyn Moore. Learn more about groups fighting the marginalization and devaluation of black women's lives by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Verdon Square Radio in Summit, New Jersey, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.